So it's a sad fact, but I think this is the last sermon I'm going to be doing on a Sunday. So everyone who's spoken to me uh, before the service, I've said that I'm going to do an epic one. It's going to be about three hours or so. So <laughs> just to make the most of it, you know, I'm not going to have the opportunity again. I won't really. If I go over kind of 40 minutes, I'll just get quieter and quieter because Jono will be turning me down. Uh, technology can be frustrating, can't it? Who finds technology frustrating as well? Yeah, yeah. I get very frustrated. Printers especially. I don't know what it is about them, but they have the ability to annoy me beyond belief sometimes. It can feel that they're like possessed by this malicious demon out to get me. Because I, I want to just print something off, I'll do, do that quickly. But what was a quick job, it turns into what feels like a fight to the death with my nemesis, Epson WP4545. My laptop's working fine. The printer's switched on. I, pre- I click print, but nothing happens. And then I see on my laptop, next to the name of the printer, connection problem. How frustrating. The printer could be fine, my computer could be fine, but if there's no connection between the two, then I might as well be trying to print using a cheese sandwich, mightn't I? There's just no hope. If the printer isn't connected, then it just can't print. And if it can't print, then it's useless, isn't it? It's not doing its job. Well, humanity, you and I have a connection problem. We are made in the image of God to reflect the glory of God, to share in the character and life of the living God. We're meant to be kings and queens, rulers of the universe, reigning in the name of the living God. Do you know that? But that's not the case. Because the Bible says we've fallen short of the glory of God. We don't reflect the beautiful character of our creator. And we aren't rulers. So often we're just enslaved by all kinds of things. And the reason is, we have a connection problem. Now this is the last in the series of these I am statements of Jesus. And we've seen through this series how Jesus says emphatically that he is it. He's the source of life. He is the eternal God, Yahweh, the I am. He's become man to rescue his people from their sin. We've seen how he says he's the bread of life offered to satisfy the hungry souls. He's the light of the world come to conquer the darkness. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, but is risen from the dead to always and forever care and protect them. He's the way for the lost. He's truth for those who've believed a pack of lies. He's the resurrection and the life for the spiritually dead. Jesus is who we were made for and who actually deep down we all need. To have Jesus is to have everything and so to be without Jesus is to be with nothing. Jesus turns death to life 
He turns hell into heaven and gives hope to the hopeless. Because it's all about Jesus, we need to know how do we relate to him. Jesus tells his disciples here in John 15, speaking into our need, this connection problem we have, because he says that he is the true vine and they are the branches. The message for us is that we need to be connected with and stay connected with Jesus. That's what it's all about. That's what all of this has been leading up to. The context of John 15 is that we're jumping into the story of the gospel according to John in this long conversation that Jesus had with his disciples the night that he was betrayed. And this extended passage stretches from chapter 13 of John right through to chapter 17. It's a big chunk. And from chapters 13 and 14, Jesus and his disciples are in an upper room in Jerusalem. And it's there that Jesus kneels down and washes his disciples' feet. And he says, you do likewise. And we know from the other gospel accounts that this is where the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. It's also where he told his disciples plainly that he would be betrayed and murdered and that they all would fall away from him. But Jesus comforts them by asserting that all that will take place, though horrible it is, it's planned and it has a purpose. And that he says he is the way, the truth, and the life. He also gives them the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. And at the end of chapter 14, when all this had taken place, Jesus says to his disciples, come now, let us leave. And so, though John doesn't say explicitly where Jesus and his disciples are in John chapter 15, it is pretty likely that they had come out of the upper room, they passed silently through the streets of Jerusalem, and so found themselves some secluded spot on the slopes of Mount of Olives, leading to the Valley of the Kidron. And there, surrounded by his little band of disciples, it's there that he sees this beautiful picture of himself and his followers. In the vineyard, in the olive groves, he sees a vine. And he tells his disciples, you know what? I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. I'd like us to consider the three parts of this picture. The vine, the branches, and the gardener. Firstly, the vine. Jesus describes himself as the vine. He is the vibrant and flourishing source of life, like how we've looked at in the other I am statements. He's the one full of the spirit of life without measure, as though it's sap, the life-giving sap of the vine. In the Old Testament, the image of a vine is used repetitively and it's to describe the people of Israel. But it's pretty much always to say that though they may look on the surface of it like they've got spiritual life in them, that they're spiritually healthy, 
God uses it to say, actually, you're spiritually barren. You've got no life in you. And it's in contrast to this that Jesus says that he is the true vine. He's the fruitful vine. He's the man who's described in Psalm 1, who is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And it's this vine that flourishes and is fruitful, that the gardener cares for. Secondly, the branches. Jesus says to his disciples that they are the branches of the vine. It's an amazing and beautiful statement. Because if you look at an olive vine, you can't tell where the vine stops and the branch begins. They're part of each other. They're different parts of one being. And Jesus uses this image to explain the deep, intimate union as between Jesus and his sinful followers. It gives so much honor, doesn't it, to the, the followers of Jesus. It's to literally to become part of who Jesus is. So often, when we think of God, we just want God to give us stuff, or at least that's what I can lapse into. Maybe we think... God, I want a new car. I want better health. I need more money. Or maybe we phrase it in kind of spiritual stuff. We want assurance or joy. However, Jesus doesn't give us stuff that we want. He gives us what we need. He offers himself and for us to be joined with him. Imagine a poor beggar woman coming to a great king. And she comes to this great king and says, Lord, I need more money. I need, I need clothes. I need more food. Now, after hearing this, the great king steps back down from his throne and he gets down on one knee and says, will you marry me? It's not just saying, yeah, I'll, I'll sort you out. I'll give you all this stuff. It's saying, have me. Have it all. All that was yours will be mine. And all that I am and what I have, I'll share with you. That's the kind of union that Jesus is speaking. So Jesus isn't this distant God who's aloof from humanity, who just flings stuff like forgiveness and peace and joy and things like that. No, he's a God who's near and who offers himself. He wants us to share in his life with him so that all that is Jesus's is mine, but also all that I have and all that I am belongs to him a vine with its branches. We should say, though, that there is a distinction in roles, though, isn't there, between the vine and the branches, and so between Jesus and us. Because the vine is the one that's full of life. The vine isn't dependent upon the branches, but it's the other way around. The branch is utterly dependent on the vine. 
It's, its life is bound up in itself being bound to the vine. That's where it gets its life source from. And so, just in the same way, we are completely dependent upon Jesus for everything. Though through his grace and mercy, we get to share in his life. He doesn't need us, but we so desperately need him. So much so that Jesus says that apart from me, you can do nothing. And thirdly, the gardener. The gardener in this picture is God the Father who looks after the vine. Just how the branches are utterly dependent on the vine, so think about it. The vine is utterly dependent on the gardener. Time and time again in John's Gospel, we read of how Jesus says he can do nothing apart from his Father's will. It's a huge thought to think, isn't it? That Jesus can do nothing apart from his Father's will. He only does what the Father wants him to do in loving trust and obedience. And the Father is always ecstatic about his Son who perfectly carries out his will. And the Father continuously fills his Son with the Holy Spirit. And the Father being the gardener, this aspect of this picture raises our eyes as well. As it were, to see the unseen work of what we might call normal church life. Because as new people come to Christ church, and more people put their trust in Jesus, the reality is that it's the gardener at work grafting in branches to the true vine. It is his work. And we also recognize that it's his unseen work in the lives of the established branches. Those who might have been here for a while. It says that those branches that bear fruit are pruned so that they may bear more fruit. It seems weird, doesn't it? A fruit... uh, A tree or a branch bearing fruit. That's good. Let's chop a bit off. But that's the way it works. It's baffling, but that's the way that it works, apparently. And we're told that the Father is pruning us so that we would bear more fruit. Now, it's going to hurt. We're not going to like it at times. But we're told that this pruning has a purpose. It's actually for our good. We need to remember this when we face opposition because of our faith, when we suffer because of ill health, whatever trial we're going through, when it feels like God's chopping off a bit there and cutting off a bit there, we feel cut back, pruned. Well, these are opportunities to cling to Jesus, the true vine. And so, bear more fruit. And the gardener is intensely passionate about the health and fruitfulness of the vine. And this leads us on to the serious warning given in our passage. We see two things. We see a warning on one side and 
a promise on the other side of it. So, the serious warning first. In verse 2, he that's the gardener cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And in verse 6, Jesus says, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. In these verses, it says, doesn't it, very clearly that the Father cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. It's because he cares so much for the vine and for its fruit, fruitfulness that it will, he will not allow a fruitless branch to remain part of it. We might wonder, why is this? Why is it so severe? Well, in response to these questions, we might ask another question. Can a branch that is actually joined to the true vine not bear fruit? Because we know that Jesus is full of life. He's like bursting full of life. And so to be connected to him, how can you not flourish in that environment if you truly are connected to him? John Calvin, uh, an old guy who's, who's in glory now, commented on this passage saying, can any who is ingrafted into Christ be without fruit? I answer, many are supposed to be in the vine according to the opinion of men who actually have no root in the vine. So we see this is a serious warning against pretenders. Those who appear on the outside to be part of the true vine. But actually, there's no vital link between the two. And so, it's a fruitless branch. And with that in mind, the gardener will not have it. If there's no connection, then it will be cut off because of its fruitlessness. We need to be warned of this. I need to be warned of this. We need to be warned of this because of the terrible consequences of being cut off from Christ. Nothing good can be done if it's not born out of the vital connection with Christ. That's what Jesus means when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We're like a withering branch there. What's that going to produce? Without Christ, we're without hope. We're unable to live as we're meant to live, like I was saying, like that frustrating printer. You want it to print. Do what it's meant to do. We're meant to reflect the glory of God, but we can't because we're separated from Christ. But furthermore, by being cut off from the source of life, of course, the branch will wither and die. It's straightforward, and it's frightening. But nonetheless, it's true. We see pictures of this all the time this time of the year. I was walking on the road outside of Escape the other day, and I admired all this grass that had grown up, this kind of wild grass on the little hill. And it's not often that you see actually how beautiful the grass is when it grows and flowers where you just usually just tread on it and don't give a thought. And I admired it. I took notice of it. 
And the next day, I walked past the same spot. And a man had been over there with a lawnmower. He'd cut off all the grass and he had piled it in to a big bag, gathered it together. And I came back the next day and the bag was still there. And what was once beautiful now looked like straw. It had withered, it was dry, because it had been cut off from its life source. And this warning of judgment, Jesus is speaking here. It culminates in the fact that these dead branches are finally thrown into the fire. This is a picture of hell, the final judgment, the second death. And it's serious. We need to know that hell is real. And the Bible warns us. Jesus is warning us now. You don't want to go there. But more than that, you don't have to go there. You don't have to. Be joined with Jesus. Stay connected with the source of life. And live. It's straightforward. On the flip side to this serious warning is a wonderful promise. There's the promise of life if you're joined to the vine. Some people assume that a fulfilling life is found elsewhere than Jesus. It's crazy, isn't it? But they do. They might assume that they'll live for themselves, and maybe when they'll get older, when death gets a bit closer, that's when they might think about trusting in Jesus. But Jesus tells us that he's offering real life now. Apart from him, we wither spiritually. But being connected to him... It means that we are filled with his eternal life. And so why would you want to wait for this? Why put it off? Can you imagine a seriously ill patient who's putting off treatment? Treatment that will, without a doubt, restore them to health. Would anyone say in that situation, actually, no thanks, doctor. I'm just going to enjoy this pain and my sickness for a little bit longer. When I'm really close to dying, then I might think about getting treatment. It's crazy, isn't it? They're being a fool. Why wait? Why wait to live a well life? If we're connected to Jesus, we share in his life, which is a fulfilling life. It gives you meaning and purpose, which starts now and it stretches on fraternity. We have Jesus' Father as our Father. We have His Spirit as our Spirit. And we're gathered into a community of believers, displaying the glory of God, the thing that we were meant to do. Why wait? But also, this promise is one of a life which bears fruit. Verse 5 says, If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Now what does Jesus mean by producing fruit? He clearly isn't saying if you trust him, you'll start growing kiwis out your fingers. I don't know, pineapples out your head. But what does he mean? We might assume that a fruitful life is 
when you just get success at everything. Or maybe it's about being creative or producing things. Or maybe it's something kind of good-natured like giving to charity, things like that. The fact is, we all want to produce something. We want to live a life that is worthwhile, don't we? And we want to make something that actually lasts. And this speaks into that felt need of ours. Because to be fruitful, which is born out of being united to the Son of God, is to become like Christ in nature. Just how maybe that withered branch is bound onto the the vine which is full of life. And as it's there, enjoying its connection with the vine, the withered vine, the, the withered branch, begins to soften at the edges, starts to become greener, starts to put out leaves. It's becoming the same nature, the same character of the vine. And so, and eventually it will start to bear fruit in the same way we are to bear fruit in the way that we become like Christ in nature. And so we speak like him. We act like him. Jesus' life is the one which is bearing fruit. His great work of dying on the cross brought it about that sinners could come to God. And that lasts. We'll be praising him for that for all eternity. That's fruit that will last. And we are to bear fruit by living as he lived. Or maybe more accurately, as his life is lived out through us. And what was Jesus' life like? It was a, a life of love. A love for God, a love for the church, and a love for the world. It sums up the whole law. All of what God wants us to do is to love. To bear fruit is, first of all, a transformation of our character so that we resemble Jesus. But then it is to act and speak. And so we sacrificially love other people. We display our love for God and our commitment to him. And Jesus explicitly says this when he says the reason why he's saying all this, this is why I read the second bit of the the passage, because he commands this, love each other as I have loved you. That, in a nutshell, is the fruit that Jesus wants you to produce in your life. Love for each other, even as he has loved us. Now all this, we can't strain ourselves. We're not to think, well, that's not me. And so I need to try really hard to start living like this. That's not the message that Jesus is getting across. Because it's an organic process. Organic is a very middle-class term. I realized I was middle class when I signed up for a fruit and veg box with Ellie, which was organic. 
But that's the truth. That we will display Jesus' life of love naturally, organically, as we're united to him. A pastor called Francis Chan puts it very well and in a funny way. Where he's saying like, branches aren't meant to be stressed out about, oh, I'm not being fruitful. I need to try really hard to be fruitful. I'm trying to pop out an apple. So I say apple really weirdly. An apple. That's not the way to produce fruit. It just happens. It just happens. It's natural. If you're connected to the vine, you will produce fruit. It's as simple as that. And so we're not to go away thinking, man, have I got to work hard on, getting, on making some fruit? Because that would be the pretender branch, wouldn't it? That would be like going to Asda down the road, buying a, a bag of apples and stapling them to your apple tree. It's fake, isn't it? It's not real. Now the process of the branch bearing fruit is natural. And so as followers of Jesus... It should be a natural process of becoming like him and living like him. In all this, I hope that we've come to realize the necessity of being connected to Jesus. But how do we do this? We've seen that it's disastrous if we're not connected with him. We've seen that it's great if we are connected with him. But it still leaves the question, well, how are we actually connected to him? Because it's quite an abstract idea. Well, the words in our passage that keep on cropping up are, remain in me, remain in my word, remain in my love. And the word remain here in the Greek is meno, which means to abide. So the message is to abide, make Jesus our home. Where you your abode is, where you abide. The homes where you, you settle down. You're not looking to move. You're there to rest. And so we're to make Jesus our home. We're not looking for something better. We're settled on him and in him. We're rested and content in him. But that's still pretty abstract, isn't it? Because if Jesus is in heaven and I'm down here on earth... And how do I make Jesus my home? It's a lovely thing to say, but what does it actually mean? Well, Jesus has promised to be forever present in particular places so that we can live out this union in our lives. We can display this union with him. And there's three I'll go through quickly. Jesus is present in the Bible. As we read the scriptures and we ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit, we meet with the risen Lord Jesus, just like in Luke chapter 24. And so we make Jesus our home as we read the Bible, as we listen to sermons, as we meditate on God's word. It sounds boring, too too simple to be true. But it is true. Jesus is present in the Bible. And that's where we can make Jesus our home. Also, Jesus is present in the Lord's Supper and baptism. 
And these are both visible signs of being united to Jesus. Baptism symbolizing us being united with him in his death, being raised in him, with him in his life. And communion displaying how by us eating his body and by drinking his blood, we become part of the body of Christ, knit together in him. Just like the branches being united to the vine. And lastly, the third way is Jesus present when believers are gathered, just like right now. We call the assembly of followers of Jesus the church. The church just means assembly. And so it's crucial to gather together with other followers of Jesus. It might come in different ways, but it's so key because Jesus has promised to be present when his people are gathered. And so in church, that's a way of making Jesus our home, being connected to him. And yet it is possible to read the Bible, to be baptized and take communion, come to church, and it's just to be an external thing. We don't abide in Christ by just going through the motions. We know this because if it was just going through the motions, then Satan would be part of Jesus because Satan knows the Bible very well, and yet he's not part of Christ. The people of Israel in the wilderness, they were part of the church, and yet they failed to trust Jesus, and so they were cut off. So we need to trust Jesus and obey him as we do all these things. It's no good just doing these external things, reading the Bible, going to church, the Lord's Supper, and and baptism. They need to be joined with faith and obedience. As we do them, as we obey Jesus' command to love one another, as he has loved us. I mean, that statement says that these things are absolutely necessary. We must go to church if we want to be part of the vine. For how can we love each other if we never meet up? Verse 9, Jesus tells us that he has shown his disciples exactly what it looks like to be united to him. This is mind-blowing. I love this part. I love this. Because it's the same way that Jesus remains in his Father. The same way that Jesus is united to his Father, the Trinitarian relationship. So is it the same way that we remain in Jesus. Because he says, He says that as he loves his father, so he remains in his father's love. And so as we, uh, as we obey Jesus by loving each other, we are abiding in Jesus. And just how Jesus is utterly dependent on his father for all things, so we need to be utterly dependent on Jesus for all things trusting him and obeying him 
That's how we are to abide in him. So to close, without Jesus, we're useless. We're like that frustrating printer who just won't do what it's meant to do. But for a flourishing life, one with meaning that produces fruit that lasts, we need to be joined to the true vine. And as we do that, we're gathered as a people and we're to display the glory of God by obeying Jesus' command to love one another even as he has loved us.